Super excited to be here. Thanks, everyone. Uh, really excited. Brad, on behalf of the Canadian tech ecosystem, we're super grateful to have you here today to share your thoughts. As a startup community, we're in the midst of our own evolution, so we're all excited to hear what you have to say. I'll have you know that Brad Feld coined the term uh, startup community, which is now standard global terminology. Brad's been an entrepreneur and a venture capitalist for over three decades. He's co-founded two venture firms, including Foundry Group, and was also a co-founder of Techstars. Uh, he's the author of over a dozen books about venture capital and startups, and is also extremely active in numerous nonprofits. On a personal note, when I uh, started uh, Golden, Venture, uh, Golden Ventures in 2011, I, in our, through our first investment, I ended up on a board with Brad. And since then, he's been a, a friend, a mentor, and more recently through Foundry, an investor in our fund. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, Brad Feld. I didn't realize Yesware was one of your first investments. I knew it, it was, was the very first. I didn't realize <laughs> it was the first one. Well, you know, fake it till you make it. I get to say I knew you way back when. I guess. Well, yeah. You, well, yeah, you were already very, very midstream. <laughs> Is that a way of saying that now I'm old tenure? <laughs> no, no, that's not what I'm saying. How you been? We're so excited to have you here today. I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's always fun to be with you, and it's a delight to do stuff like this and appreciate the support around the book. Oh, pleasure. So, you know what? We're going to dive right into it. I, I think for context, I want to dig into your background a little bit. So you started a tech company when you were in college, and you worked on that for 10 years, including your time with the acquirer. What were the learnings from that experience that helped form your perspective as an investor? Uh, a couple. One, I learned that I didn't like being CEO. Um, for my first company, I was CEO for seven years. We got acquired. I became the CTO of the acquirer, which was growing, growing very quickly. And I started making a bunch of angel investments with the money that I made from the sale of the company. This was 1994, 95, 96. And I actually continued to have a chairman or co-chair role in several companies I co-founded or companies I invested in. And when the internet bubble collapsed in 2000, 2001, um, I really realized I couldn't be an investor and an operator. And uh, I, had a, I had a three month period after 9-11 in the US uh, that I was very depressed. Um, my whole world was fucked up. Uh, on an investing front, most of the companies I was involved in were in real stress. Some had failed, some were failing. Some, some ended up doing okay, but it was a very, very intense time. And then I think 9-11 kind of rattled every American uh, at, at some level, um, not just the event, but then sort of the reaction around the event. And so there was kind of this period of time, maybe I like to say there was three months where most of the U.S. through the end of the year was just at some level of, of uh, depressed or... Uh, really struggling. And and I just went very inward. And in that period of time decided uh, I hadn't traveled at all for those three months. I just shut everything down and just sort of worked through the shit that I had to work through. But I realized that part of the thing that was uh, so challenging for me was even though I was chairman of or co-chair of these companies, several of them had fired CEOs over their life. So in the last three or four years, I'd been acting CEO while being a full-time venture investor for several of the companies. And I just didn't like it. 
And so that was one. Like I, I realized that I liked being the investor. And my mental model around investing for a long time from an angel investor through today still is as long as I support the CEO, I work for her. Uh, if I don't support the CEO, it's my job to do something about that, which does not mean fire her. It means work hard to try to get back to the place of support. And, you know, I'm not afraid to replace the CEO if necessary. I don't like to do it, but, um, uh, you know, I've done it numerous times. Um, but that frame of reference where I really am of service to the CEO rather than the boss of, um, that, that's, that's one. Second, I didn't know anything about investing prior to selling my first company. So that first company was self-funded. We bootstrapped the business. We didn't raise any money. Um, we actually did all our own legal work. My partner and I, we didn't really have legal agreements with our clients. We just had a one-page agreement that was plain English. We never had any litigation. Um, you know, we had some tense moments with some some clients, but never never anything that turned into the good the good old days. The good old days. And when I told the business, I think we spent about forty thousand dollars. I remember the number because it was so huge at the time. Forty thousand dollars on our lawyers uh, to pay for the deal. And I remember, like, you know, they were actually a client of ours, so they knew us. And they knew that we didn't really have lawyers. And they're like, man, we we got work to do to get to, like cleaned up by a public company. So we had to like do a bunch of work there. Um, I then with uh, the co-chairman of this company, a guy, a guy named Len Fassler, who's still an extraordinarily close friend, uh, and another, uh, the other co-chairman, Terry Pock, who's also a good friend, um, I became part of their deal team. So they bought about 30-some-odd um, companies after they bought mine. They bought We were the sixth or seventh company that they bought in an acquisition run. So I learned how to buy companies working with them. And I also learned how to invest in companies because I invested in a bunch of companies as an angel, many by myself, but some with them. And one of the profound things for me there, I think that's really stuck with me, um, is I was extremely bored when we sold my business. I, I, you know, I'd run it for seven years. We had to be profitable. So we had a successful, profitable, growing business. We were a couple million dollars in revenue. We weren't huge, but we were, you know, we, we were good size in 1993 for the type of business we were. I had a business partner. We were still extremely close friends uh, 30 some odd years later, but I was bored. Uh, I wasn't learning that much. And probably if we tried to, you know, grow the company to the next level. Uh, yeah, sure. There's things to have learned. Um, but that was such a strong driver of my own personality and my own behavior. Uh, and the curve that I got on as I started to learn how to buy companies and started to learn how to invest in companies and then work as a board member investor versus as an operator was very stimulating to me for a number of years. And so I kind of come back to that. I think one of the things that's so awesome about investing uh, in 2020, I think the amount of innovation in front of us for the next 20 years is much, much greater than the last 20 years of innovation. And the, uh, the democratization of the whole process is extraordinary. So the ability for someone uh, who doesn't have experience, who comes from a different background, who's a first generation entrepreneur, first generation investor, someone who comes from a, a, an environment that doesn't have uh, you know, in the U.S., we're now talking not just about diversity and inclusion, but around equity. So gender yeah. equity and racial equity, you know, just just the ability for that, not just in certain places to be a powerful part of the learning curve. 
um, but also broadly across the globe, across the world, this democratization of entrepreneurship and the learning that comes from it. It's been very stimulating to me. Um, and I just tie it back to what was at the beginning for me, uh, what caused it to be so interesting. I think that's that's super awesome. And and going back, how, how, you went in, you you went to SoftBank Technology Ventures. Why why did you how did you end up there, and why did you leave to start your own firm? What 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 prompted that? Yeah. So the the timing journey I had was nineteen. I sold my company in nineteen ninety three. I made my first angel investment early in 1994 at a company called NetGenesis, also with somebody you met in your first company, a guy named Rob Bargava, who is a co-founder of Yesware and on the board. Yeah, and now Jump Cloud, amazing. Raj, yeah. We have Jump Cloud, and we're investors. I've probably done seven or eight companies now with Raj since then. And um, uh, that, so that was 94. In, I moved to Boulder, Colorado from Boston in November of 95. I got connected with a Japanese company that was not well known at the time called SoftBank that was just starting to make investments in the U.S. and was just starting to buy digital media companies. That's what we used to call Internet companies in the 90s in the U.S. And there was a small team that worked for SoftBank, very small in the U.S., and they didn't really want to grow the team. So they got a group of us to work as uh, I don't remember what our title was, like affiliates or something. And it was me, Fred Wilson from uh, Union Square. Venture. Union Square, yeah. Uh, Jerry Colonna, who now runs Reboot. Yeah. Uh, and, and both both Fred and Jerry are extremely close friends. And Jerry's one of my closest closest friends on the planet. Uh, and then a guy named Rich Levendov, who for did a firm called Masthead and then ended up at a firm called Avalon. And the four of us did investments. Fred and Jerry ended up forming a firm called Flatiron Partners that SoftBank was one of the two LPs in initially. Right. There was, um, uh, was Chase. And uh, I was doing my own thing, making investments, but doing stuff with SoftBank. SoftBank then ran out of money. Um, and so a group of us, three of the people that worked for SoftBank and me, started a venture fund that SoftBank sponsored um, we raised that fund in 1997. It took us a year to raise it because raising an inter internet-focused venture fund in right. 1997 was no walk in the park. You got a lot of internet what? And are you kidding me? You're only going to invest in internet stuff? How stupid is that uh, from traditional LPs? SoftBank was $13 million of a $300 million fund. So they sponsored us, but they didn't really provide very much capital. So it was really, we raised a fund. The way I describe my engagement in that is it was totally accidental. I didn't spend time thinking about my partners. I just sort of, uh, when Gary Rochelle, who was one of the original, one of the guys that worked for SoftBank and one of the four of us called me up one day, I was actually going down the path of raising my own venture fund, $40 million seed fund with another partner. Uh, I hadn't really started yet in a serious way, but I'd had some conversations and had a few LPs that were sort of talking about doing something. It's very unusual to raise a new seed fund then. That was not- Right, not like today. Not like today, and and uh, so so it was very uncertain. And Gary called me one day and said, "We're going to raise a fund. Do you want to do it with us versus doing your own thing?" And I'm like, "Yeah, what the hell?" So so I accidentally ended up becoming part of this fund that grew incredibly fast. We ended up raising almost two billion dollars across three funds in three years. The organization scaled up to over seventy people. Wow. Uh, Post internet bubble completely collapsed. So. Um, 
you know, we fired a bunch of partners. We scaled the organization way down. We had one very good performing fund, that first fund. The second fund was very poorly performing fund. And the third fund, which we're finally in 2020, 20 years later, shutting down, um, did not perform well, but did, you know, okay for a 2000 vintage fund. Like it was sort of in the zone of mediocre performance versus rock bottom, terrible performance. Got it. Uh, and, you know, I ended up there and, and post-internet bubble fighting through that. Uh, I had a moment in time in 2003 where I thought about quitting uh, and just saying, fuck it, I'm done with it. It's just not my nature. And I ended up deciding that if I wasn't going to, if I wasn't going to leave, I needed to actually really get involved and take responsibility for what was going on. Because up to that point, I was in Colorado. The rest of the fund was in California and I was doing deals, but I wasn't really deeply involved in the management of it. I mean, I was a partner, so I was responsible. I'm not, I'm not shirking responsibility, but I just wasn't that engaged in it. And from about 2003 to 2006 was a period of time I referred to as the grind for me. Uh, there was just nothing fun in any of it. It was just work. Um, and I finally picked up my head in 2006 and, and 2005, 2006 started thinking about new stuff. Started Techstars, co-founded Techstars 2006. That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. Co-founded Foundry Group in 2007. But so by 2007, I was, it was clear that, you know, we weren't going to raise another fund that what now had become called Mobius. I was going to manage it through its end of life. And I was ready to look forward for what the next thing was while still being connected to the past. Awesome. And maybe just for the benefit of the audience, what are, what are some of the deals that you've done that, that the audience might be familiar with? Um, some of the names that people may know uh, from this whole arc of time, I'll start with some early ones. Uh, I was a very early investor in a company called Harmonix. Uh, they were started in 1995 in Boston. Uh, one of the co-founders was uh, a young fraternity brother of mine. Maybe we were apart by 10 years or so. And he didn't know me. I didn't know him, but he just reached out out of the blue one day to me. He knew of me through the fraternity we were in. That company tried to go out of business for a decade. So I like to, I don't know if people are um, Douglas Adam fans, but if you know Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, the president of the universe is somebody named Zafa Bebo Rocks, who um, is a much, much more amusing version of the uh, person that we have in the United States right now who's trying to pretend like he's the president of the universe. <laughs> And, and he's a very flawed character, but he had many funny lines. I guess if your name is Zafak, people rocks you're going to. And uh, one of my favorite lines of his from all time is that the way that you fly is you throw yourself at the ground as hard as you can and miss. Right. And that's how Harmonix was successful. They tried as hard as they could every year to go out of business and somehow didn't. And then one year they came out with Guitar Hero and they were an overnight success. They got bought by Viacom. Uh, for they only raised 10 million bucks or 9 million bucks to get a very nice return for investors, 50, 50 X or something like that for early investors. And then uh, we had an earnout that one of the investors negotiated. And um, uh, we ended up in a seven year lawsuit with Viacom. It ended up paying us another probably 200 times uh, our investment uh, in the end. So, wow. you know, huge success. That's a good one. Yeah. But also, uh, the perseverance of fighting for what's owed to you versus sort of, you know, rolling over. That was an early one. I, I had a number of, of ones like that early on. Uh, internet bubble success of mine that I invested as an angel investor was Critical Path. Um, yep. It was really the first email, hosted email service 
I think their peak market cap back when the, these were big numbers was $5 billion or something. And Amazing. Uh, what, about more re- what about more recently? Those are old ones. Ones that people yeah. would from the foundry era uh, would include Fitbit, yeah. uh, which we invested in when they were 10 people. I was on that board uh, from very early on. Uh, Zynga, uh, which um, uh, I invested in with Fred Wilson. We invested in the company when it was about 10 people, sort of first round of-, wow. of yeah. Um, MakerBot, which is a 3D printer company that really created desktop th- or, or really created the notion of desktop 3D printing. Um, they ended up getting bought by Stratasys. Um, today, some companies that were investors and that people may be familiar with include Whoop, uh, which is yeah, a very, very exciting. And make this, uh, it's very, very different than my Fitbit, which I wear over here. Um, uh, but if you're any sort of fitness enthusiast, uh, the data uh, is extraordinary. Um, and, uh, another, f- another fun one that's very front and center right now, I think that people are aware of, uh, is Molecule. Uh, they make a, a Pico-based air filter that actually destroys viruses. So very relevant in the time of COVID. Um, so, uh, there's a handful. That's great. Thanks. Thanks for that. I think, I think we're, we're going to move into, um, I'm going to invite the Tectio Insider Kiati to the stage to ask Brad a question. Go so, for it. Here we go. Thanks, Matt. Hi, Brad. I'm Kiati, and I'm a strategy consultant at IBM. So my question is around SPACs, because we've seen this year has been a record for the number of SPACs that have been out there, um, and they really proved themselves to be a really quick way for entrepreneurs to raise capital. And Nicola, being a poster child, for it, they they went uh, public via SPAC and re- and their uh, valuation went up to about eight times, um, despite them being pre-revenue uh, in a really hard industry, probably unlikely to attract any strategic buyers. Um, so my question is that if we start to see other pre-revenue entrepreneurs start to follow in the same footsteps and use SPACs as a way to raise capital, what might be some of the implications for that when we think of SPACs and then also how might investor sentiment towards SPACs start to change? Yeah, so, so um, it's, a, it's a powerful question. And I, I, I like that uh, Nicola is the example that you're using with pre-revenue company. I, I think time will not be kind to pre-revenue companies that go public through SPACs. Um, Nicola is one of the few where that has happened. And, um, you know, Nicola has had a pretty rocky ride uh, post-e-SPAC uh, because of the fundamentals of their business. Um, I think most SPACs uh, in today's market is really a way and, and a way companies should think about them as an alternative uh, for a company to go public. Um, you... Uh, you have sort of the, the classical ways of going public uh, through an IPO listing, direct listing, a regular listing. You now have a direct listing. I think we're going to see Airbnb if they haven't filed already. Um, you'll see that approach where there's not actually the same kind of public offering fundraising motion, but it's similar. And then you have this, this SPAC approach uh, where uh, uh, a sponsor group takes a, a, a SPAC public, creates a shell, and then buys a private company. If you look at most successful SPACs, um, their businesses that probably were on a path to going public might be a little younger, might have some different dynamics, or in a lot of cases now are just choosing a SPAC as an alternative. 
you are seeing some SPACs uh, that are selling a future story uh, as part of their offering. And a good example of that would be Desktop Metal uh, going public. Um, you know, they're a company that's raised a lot of money in the private markets. Um, I don't know, five, six hundred million dollars. And they're going public through a merger with uh, a SPAC called Trine. And I think Desktop Metal is forecasting somewhere between 15 and 25 million dollars of revenue this year, which is not a lot of revenue for a company like theirs that would go public. So I, I would just sort of warn entrepreneurs to view SPACs as a pre-revenue path to financing um, and instead sort of focus it on a mid-stage path uh, for companies that are considering an IPO and it being an alternative uh, to that IPO path. Thanks, Brad. So let's, let's move on to the book, The Startup Community Way. Fabulous book. Uh, so we're super excited. Let's start with, you've written, I think, over a dozen books about startups uh, and venture capital. What prompted you to write your first book? Uh, so for precision, I think I've actually written that I, I, I attribute to me seven. Okay. I've written second and third venture deals is in its fourth edition. Um, the first book I wrote, Do More Faster, is in its second edition. So, like, you know, you can find that. But I, I would call it seven, not a dozen. So I got okay. a long time to be Isaac Asimov. Um, the motivation for the first book was I've always liked to write. Um, my wife's a writer. My mom's an artist. Uh, I've always been comfortable writing. I've Historically, before the Internet, I wrote magazine articles occasionally. And, of course, you know, in the world of someone who is involved in lots of businesses. There's lots and lots of memo writing and email writing and things like that. Uh, I started a blog in 2004 and I was one of the early VC bloggers. Fred Wilson started a blog a couple months earlier. Jerry Colonna and I started a blog about the same time. David Hornick uh, from August Capital had a, yeah. a blog several years earlier, but there just wasn't a lot of that kind of VC content. And of course, at the beginning for the first couple of years, we were widely mocked for writing blogs. And I like to say we were mocked, Fred and I were mocked regularly for not having enough work to do by VCs who spent way too much time on the golf course. Um, and it was just kind of weird. Didn't quite understand the, the negative sentiment around it because for me, writing generally is working out ideas. Um, I learn by reading and I learn by writing. I do learn some by listening, but it's much, I'm, I'm much less efficient. It's much more efficient for me to read something uh, just in terms of how my own brain processes. And yeah, then, and, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and, and for the benefit of the audience, Feld Thoughts is probably one of the most referenced blogs on anything startup or anything venture capital. So if you ever have a question, just searching that is usually your best reference. Yep, plenty of stuff. So I've, you know, I, I've sort of was writing 20 or 30 blog posts a month. Um, uh, with my uh, then partner, Jason Mendelson at Foundry, we wrote a 30 post series on deconstructing a term sheet uh, <laughs> in about 2005. Uh, it, it really kind of annoyed both of us, the information asymmetry between VCs and entrepreneurs. And it actually just made our jobs harder because we'd end up being in these situations where we're negotiating with lawyers that weren't really venture lawyers over a whole bunch of nonsense. So, so I'd been writing sort of longer form things as series of blog posts. And as Techstars was starting to take off in 2009, so we started in 2006, ran the first program in 2007, we're starting to expand. We've expanded to Boston. I think we'd expanded to Seattle by now. 
David Cohen and I, uh, uh, one of the other co-founders, uh, came, decided to write a book together. And uh, we just decided, you know what, let's write a book uh, on stories and lessons from tech stars. And that was the motivation for writing Do More Faster. At about the same time, the publisher, which was Wiley, um, saw the term sheet posts and wanted Jason uh, and I to do a book or wanted me to do a book on uh, uh, venture capital deals. And Jason and I talked about it. We decided we'd do that. Uh, so we started working on that. But David and I did Do More Faster first. And I'm really glad we did. Because if you've never written a book, it's a different kind of beast. And to, to learn how to write a book, in some ways, takes writing a book. And, right. and, and writing Do More Faster really taught me the basics of how to write a book. I think I've gotten better with each book. Um, and when we wrote the second book, Venture Deals, uh, which has been an extremely successful book as a book, uh, and one I'm, I'm very proud of because we put a lot of work into it. It's not just the composite of those 30 term sheet posts. That's probably 5% or maybe 10% of the book and not even the post, just sort of the ideas of the post because we rewrote everything. I couldn't have written with Jason that book if I hadn't done Do More Faster with David. And we did it mostly because Techstars was starting to become a thing. And we wanted to tell the stories because early stage entrepreneurship was becoming a thing. People were starting to blog more about early stage entrepreneurship. Uh, people were starting to tweet about it. You were starting to get more things about it. And we just felt like we had a lot of a lot of stories from the first couple of years of Techstars that needed to be liberated. And that was- Yeah, you were able to catalyze all that information in those books, which was fabulous. So I, I wanna, I'm gonna switch a bit into the book itself because I, I wanna make sure we cover some info in a limited amount of time. So you, so obviously you got interested in, in writing about startup communities. Can you touch on bold, the Boulder thesis, which you wrote about in your first book, uh, Startup Communities in 2012, because that sort of formed the foundation of even this book. Yeah, so uh, the book came out in 2012. I started working on it in 2010. So uh, uh, the phrase startup communities didn't exist. Uh, we're just coming out of the global financial crisis. Um, and the, the, the thing that's starting to be talked about in lots of places is the idea that uh, entrepreneurship and innovation are going to be the path forward uh, economically out of the global financial crisis globally. I live in Boulder, Colorado. I have never believed that if you're serious about starting a tech company, you should go to the Bay Area. If you want to go to the Bay Area, go to the Bay Area. But I've always believed you could start a company anywhere you wanted to. Uh, and I've come to believe that every city in the world uh, with at least 100,000 people needs a vibrant startup community to be a healthy city. So this is 2010. This is not obvious. This is not mainstream thinking. And there was an article that, that came out in a magazine where somebody wrote about cities to learn from. And they were Silicon Valley, which, of course, is not a city. It's a bunch of cities, uh, New York, Boston and Boulder. And Boulder is 100,000 people. So like we fit right. in a couple of buildings in downtown, in downtown Toronto or downtown, like one block in downtown Toronto, just cram us in there. And um, uh, my reaction to that was, okay, there's something that's been going on in Boulder for a long time. Let me try to deconstruct that. That led me to the Boulder thesis, which was four principles. And I built this whole first book, Startup Communities, around those four principles. And they are... The leaders of a startup community have to be entrepreneurs. You have to take a long-term view, at least 20 years. 
You have to be inclusive of anyone who wants to engage at any level. And you have to have activities and events that involve everybody in the in entrepreneurship. So not just cocktail parties, but accelerators, startup weekends, dot, dot, dot. Um, in 2012, when this book came out, those were fresh ideas. Right. And in many places, even the phrase, because the phrase startup community didn't exist, people didn't have the language for it. So they call it innovation cluster. They call it Silicon that. I don't know what Toronto's, what was Toronto was like Silicon cold or something for a while. No, yeah, they were trying to, trying to dub us something. I don't think we, I don't think we took the mantle. Good. We're our own, we're our own ecosystem. We were talking to about uh, Silicon Beach. Uh, And I said, well, you please (laughs) stop calling it that. Like just, it's, it's Santa Monica. Like it's got a brand, like leverage of Santa Monica. Um, and so I kind of took this not as a recipe or a playbook or anything like that, but just as a starting point um, and then built a lot around that in the book, which interestingly, eight years later, I, I did a second edition of the book. Eight years later, it holds up. Um, I've, I've modified a few things and I've got a couple of things wrong uh, in that first book that I adjusted in the second edition that we talk about in the Startup Community Way. Um, but I- importantly, this big shift around the idea of what a startup community has emerged. One point that I'll end with on this is that in the new book, in the startup community way, uh, my co-author and I, Ian Hathaway, were really clear about defining what a startup community is and the difference between a startup community and an entrepreneurial ecosystem, because they get conflated all the time. And you're calling it entrepreneurial community or startup ecosystem. And I want to just, for everybody listening that's part of the startup community, um, there's the way to know what a startup community is, is there's one goal for the startup community, one goal, and that's to help entrepreneurs succeed. That's it. Entrepreneurial ecosystem and the actors in the entrepreneurial ecosystem have lots of other goals, all that are good, many that are good, lots that are complementary, but they're engaging with the startup community when they're looking through the lens of, is this thing that I'm doing helping entrepreneurs succeed? I love that lens. And I think, I think, We've seen the evolution of that in our in our startup community across Canada, and and we're starting to see the success as a result of that. But but you know, building a community is a team sport to some, to to a degree as long as you have that core focus. So what about all the other participants in the ecosystem? What role what roles do they play? Well, they're very you know, government incubators, accelerate etc. It's all to support the entrepreneur. <laughs> They're, they're, they're very important. Today, we call them actors and to, to sort of have a label to categorize it. And in my first book, I separated the world into two categories, leaders and feeders. Right. And, and that was one of the mistakes. And so we've added a third category, which is instigator. Uh, and there are two mistakes with leaders and feeders. One was it created a hierarchy. People sort of thought the hierarchy was leaders, feeders. And it wasn't. It's uh, sorry, I'm backwards in my <laughs> everything's back. Um, they were they were peers they were different but they were both important and i should have called them apples and papayas right i should have used more neutral language Um, but the leaders feeders language stuck so we'll we'll stay with it the difference now is that feeders are organizations feeder organizations government university nonprofits supporting entrepreneurship entrepreneur investors service providers uh you know etc big companies large companies People who work for feeders can play a leadership role in the startup community. So the second mistake was I didn't give them a voice. So they're instigators. Sometimes we hear, we call them startup community champions or ecosystem builders. 
that's fine. Like categorize, I categorize them as instigators and instigators are leaders and entrepreneurs are leaders. Organizations are feeders. And the important nuance there is that the organizations themselves cannot be the leaders of the startup community. And as human beings, we anthropomorphize things all the time. And in the U.S., you know, we had a very, from my frame of reference, unfortunate Supreme Court decision a number of years ago uh, that said that uh, corporations are people, too, and they basically can have right. contribution political races. Therefore, we spend gajillions of dollars in politics now that, you know, whatever. Um, but I, I really wanted to separate this notion so that organizations themselves and universities, they they do have as part of their activity to help entrepreneurs succeed, but they have a lot of other goals. And I'll give a very specific example. I'll use government and how that gets sort of sort of messed up a lot in this language and in this dynamic. I've talked to economic system develop economic development people around the world. Um, uh, every government has I don't know how many are in the in the Canadian government and how many of them are in the Toronto government. Um, and I think about, you know, Boulder, Colorado, U.S., like there's at least one person in the city of Boulder whose job is uh, economic development. There's like a whole department uh, in the state government, Office of Economic Development, and the federal government has like, you know, the Small Business Administration and all kinds of crazy shit. Um, when you talk to a person in economic development and you say, what are your what are you trying to do? They will always say, one of the things I do is help create jobs. If you go to an entrepreneur and say, hi, I'm here to help you create jobs. Right. The entrepreneur says, wait a second, that's what I do. If my company's successful, jobs get created. I don't need Miss, Mrs. Government or Mr. Government, your help creating jobs. I need your help with a lot of other things. I need to help attracting people. I need help with you know, training, education, incentives around attracting people. Um, I need that kind of stuff, but I don't need your help creating jobs because that's, if my business is successful, that's what we do. So that would be a good example where there's nothing wrong with that government role of creating more jobs. It just doesn't help the startup community. Um, and so it helps, again, refocus people in terms of that. You can do the same down downstream, like talk about investors, right, Matt, your, your goal at Golden Ventures, like, yeah, there's lots of things that, that Golden Ventures does to uh, help entrepreneurs succeed, but you have other goals. One of your goals is to generate economic returns and ship them back to your limited partners. Some of your goals may have something to do about specific companies at the expense of other companies, which is disconnected from the startup community. Some of it may be goals that go outside the startup community that you're actually embedded within because you're investing in other places. Right. So none of these things are bad, but it, it doesn't, it then causes you, if you're responsible, if you're the leader of the startup community, it drifts the goals and the focus far away from that one singular goal. That's that's great. Thank you for that. I, I think that's super helpful. So that core focus keeps everyone aligned on what ultimately propels a startup community forward. And I think we've started to see that uh, meaningfully in our ecosystem. One, now, one of the things, go ahead. I have a comment on that that I've learned over time. I used to be, people, people would, uh, there was a lot of defensiveness or a lot of criticism or a lot of, wow, that person's not behaving correctly, sort of in the 
you know, earlier iterations of this. And I, I encourage people not to get sucked into that. Like um, universities have a natural way of being. Large businesses have a natural way of being. Each company is different, right? Government has a natural way of being. You're not trying to change their natural way of being. You're trying to help educate and encourage behavior along the dimensions that will really matter to the startup community rather than trying to push away or reject or fundamentally modify overall behavior. So part of the goal, especially with the startup community way with the new book, is to give people a lot of language around that in a positive way. Because the negative language, hey, university, you're messing up our startup community, don't do this, don't do that, is much less impactful than, hey, university, can you help us over here? Can you help us with this? Can you engage with that? Can we do this with you? Like turning it into positive tends to have a much more powerful feedback loop. Totally agree. And and in, in this book, you talk about how traditional hierarchies have to give way to networks and particularly networks of trust. Can you can you dive into that a bit? I love the, this concept of networks of trust and that that's the foundation of a of a community. Yeah. So let me let me preface that by by saying two things. One is, um, I believe that part of the outcome of the global financial crisis in 2008 to 2010 was that our society shifted from a hierarchical society, hierarchically dominated society, to a network-driven society. And what I mean by that, hierarchies will always exist, networks will always exist. But up until 2008, hierarchies dominated the way our society worked. Today, I believe networks are more powerful and have more impact uh, than hierarchies and in good ways and bad ways. And we can attribute, you know, we can play with politics and play with uh, social network technology and networks that have emerged and how that's influenced our society as a negative uh, example. But there are many positives. The other thing that I would suggest or assert is that the COVID crisis has accelerated our society by five years. So I think we're actually now living in 2025, heading towards 2026. I don't think we're going to 2021. I turn age-wise 55 on December 1st. I'm envisioning that I turn 60. And most people <laughs> say when they say, how old are you? And I say 60. They say, wow, you look pretty good for 60. Uh, but those two things are foundational here because um, networks and the way that influence happens in networks is completely different than how influence and change occur in hierarchy. And networks transcend geography and place in a very powerful way that hierarchies struggle to do. In addition, we have a very rapid change in our society, not just demographics, uh, uh, the you know the, the the contemporary discussion around uh, equity again gender and race but equity on broad dimensions you know many of these things whether you're looking at them across society or looking at them in business or in a category are a function of incumbents people who are in positions of power exercising behavior to maintain and retain that power entrepreneurs disrupt incumbents. Hierarchies reinforce incumbents. Networks destroy incumbents. And so we're in this interesting shift. It's very messy in society right now. 
and I think it's very messy globally, not just in North America, not just in the US, not just in pick your place. But I think we're accelerating that so quickly that networks and specifically networks of trust, you know, we, yeah, we have a financial relationship now, Matt, because we're investors in gold and in gold ventures, but that's not the dominant part of our relationship. The dominant part of our relationship is the trust. Trust each other. Yeah. And if you look at that as a person who is an influencer, uh, you used to develop that trust and enforce it through a hierarchy. You were someone's boss and they had to behave because you were their boss. And if you didn't behave, they fired you. You had to be loyal to them. We value loyalty over competence. How many times have we kind of wanted to vomit when somebody says something like that in the world of entrepreneurship? Well, we're cutting across all of that today with networks. And those networks of trust have momentum in terms of influence, I think, that incumbents literally over a period of time can't resist. So that's anarchy, right? It's not, it's not lawlessness. It's a real shift in the way power and influence is exerted in the context of innovation and entrepreneurship. And that's built on my fundamental premise that I, I maintained from 10 years ago, that innovation and entrepreneurship is the path forward, uh, democratizing it broadly across the world. It's the path forward for our society. That's awesome. And I, you know, I urge people to read the book. They, in, in that concept, he, Brad gets into social capital and give first mentality, which create these networks of trust. Um, but I want to switch quickly because I think we only have like a minute or two before I have to hand you off again. So um, what's your outlook on the Canadian ecosystem? And, and again, we only have a couple of minutes, but I just want to get your perspective. And are there any magic tips or tricks that you've seen that can propel uh, an ecosystem forward? <laughs> so, I'll do bullet points. Number one, I think Canada is awesome. Um, there, are, there are several places in the world that my wife, Amy, and I either individually or collectively love uh, that are outside the United States. I will list them quickly. Um, Iceland, Australia, uh, Canada. That's it. Um, awesome. She loves Paris. I endure Paris. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but my experience with Canada is I think it's an amazing place. I've watched and invested in Canada over the last 20 years. I, um, uh, I think that what's happening in Canada in many ways not just in Canada, the country, but in different regions, because of course, what's happening in Montreal is different than what's happening in Toronto, different than what's happening uh, uh, in, in uh, Ottawa, et cetera. Um, what you see is you see very, very vibrant, healthy uh, communities. You see very collaborative uh, communities that are positive sum communities. It's not dominated by one player who's trying to stomp everybody out. It's not controlled by one entity. Public-private partnerships are very comfortable in Canada, much more comfortable and easy to affect uh, than in the U.S. Um, Canada has been a massive beneficiary of the U.S. total fucked-upness around immigration. Um, And many companies that we're involved in when they're looking for uh, a second office uh, or uh, an expansion, um, you know, we have a Seattle-based company that bought a company in Vancouver, and I think they're pretty quickly going to roughly same number of employees in both places. Like those sorts of things, Canada has such an advantage 
uh, over other parts of the world, especially the adjacency to the U.S. Um, and the yeah. experience with the cultural norms, um, whether you know you're dealing with the dynamics, um, uh, you know, uh, between Toronto and Waterloo, which have very similar characteristics to Denver and Boulder. I like to describe them as right. cars. They're they're close enough. They sort of orbit around each other. They're not fighting with each other. You know, there's a little bit of you know. I mean, they're different culturally, but but a lot of crossover. Like those things are so powerful and so positive that uh, I, you know, my 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 quick hit answer is keep just keep doing more of a play along game. Play play the 2040 game now, not the 2022 game. Awesome, that is great advice. Thank you. And you know what I'm going to do now? I'm gonna I'm gonna invite my good friend Alex Norman, who's a, a the TechTO co-founder, to the stage to. Hit you up with some rapid hey. fire questions. Hey, Brad, great to meet you, Matt. Thanks. Second answers instead of four minute answers. Okay, well, we'll try to do this. We're going to do like a lightning round, quick questions. Going to be all a bit random. I'm going to start with a couple easy ones, uh, a bit off the normal beat. Uh, best place to run a marathon? Uh, I don't know. Uh, my favorite, uh, I'll list okay. two of my favorite marathons. So New York City Marathon was amazing. It was not, I did not have a good marathon, but it's an amazing experience. And then Ashton, Idaho, Mesa Falls Marathon. Uh, I think there were 200 people. You end in this tiny little town called Ashton. It's on the other side of the Tetons. I had an incredible time running that. How small is that town? I don't know, a couple thousand people. But uh, the night before, Amy and I and the guy that ran part of it with me, Matt Blumberg, uh, who's an entrepreneur, been friends for a long time, stayed in a, in a, mo in a motel, $49 a night. And in the middle of the night, anybody who's never run a marathon knows that you're restless anyway. It's hard to sleep the night before a marathon. Uh, I had to unplug the little refrigerator and take it outside the room because like every five minutes it would go. So, but, sounds uh, like, yeah, a bit different experience. Um, okay. Next one. Spectrum. Both, I, I like that. Both ends of the spectrum. Uh, I know you're vegetarian. I have to ask: Have you eaten any of the new meat substitutes like Beyond Meat? I have, and I'm um, I, I, I'm not a huge fan um, for for uh, the reason that I've mostly lost my taste for meat. Okay. And so um, the the effort to make it really sort of physically actually tastes like meat is a little off-putting to me. Um, and I've just gotten so used to things like Satan and tofu, um, you know, that are, that, that are, you know, soy based or different that I've not, I've not gotten into it. I, I, every now and then I'll have a, a burger like that. And I always end up going back to like, you know, I'd rather have somebody do a really good bean uh, and beet burger than okay. one that sort of is dripping artificial red, something or other. <laughs> So no love lost with uh, meat. Uh, now let's get into more traditional questions. Uh, one I thing tried, I found out. I've tried. It's very, it's very funny. Just I'll say like the experience. Uh, my wife is a mostly vegetarian. Okay. And we tried and tried a few times. And each time we kind of be halfway through and be like, this is not good. <laughs> so one, one thing a founder should never do while raising. If you have one piece of advice for them. Um, why? <laughs> okay. Fair enough. I, it, it's so amazing to me the number of times, you know, uh, I've had, you know, really good meetings with this firm, this firm, this firm. And after the meeting, I send them an email like, I don't have any idea who you're talking about. Or, 
you know, I'm getting three turnkeys by Friday. I need you to park sheet by Friday. And then I'm, I'm like, we're not there. You know, sorry, we're going to have to pass. And then on Tuesday, it's like, well, you know, things delayed a week. Da, da, da. Um, and those are just surface level lies. Like those are kind of white lies. Yeah. Versus lying about fundamental things. Just don't do it. Just play it straight. Because the second you get caught by something like that, you've lost, you've lost all credibility. Yeah. And it sounds like that goes back to your whole idea of a trust network too. So yeah, you can't trust the person. The same thing is true for an investor. I, I I can't tell you the number of times I'm in a negotiation with somebody. It's usually around selling a company, but I hear the negotiation. That's this is my my best and final offer. And and what I mean when when the person says that, I immediately think, okay, they've got at least one or two more offers after that. Because <laughs> right? nobody says this is my best and final offer. Like if they're serious about it, they say, you know what, that was the best offer I'm yeah. out. And you know what? I'll come back. I'll do that deal with you. They say, okay, I was happy to do a deal at that price, but I'm out versus sort of the bullshit yeah. game. I love that. No, no bullshit. Uh, why should a founder not raise venture? I, I think it's been glamorized over the last decade with everyone's everyone started blogging. And so why should, why should a founder not raise? raise? If you don't need to raise venture capital, don't. Um, my, uh, my partner, Chris Moody, uh, who previously was CEO of Ganip, which we were, I was on the board of, and then Twitter bought it, and he ran Twitter's data business for three years, um, and then joined us in 2016. Um, he has a new video series. I guess the cool kids call them vlogs, uh, and and it's called Venture Kills. And if you uh, do a search on Venture Kills, if he's any good at SEO, it'll come up. But if you can't find it, go to felt.com and type Venture Kills. He's done some videos, and he basically starts off by saying, "Look, if you don't have to raise venture capital, don't." My, my, my view of it's the same. It's a tool. It is not a requirement. It is not um, a thing that causes you to be successful. My first company that I described early on, we built a nice company. We raised no money. Um, Techstars didn't raise any outside capital for the first five years of its life. I mean, it raised some funds that you know funded companies, but it didn't actually raise any money to run the operating business called Techstars for a while. Um, so... You know, many, many successful companies have been built where capital is just a tool. And the longer you can delay raising capital, the more valuable your business probably is. And the more you've worked through the stuff that you're going to have to work through to start to get the accelerating ramp. I love that answer. Um, best way to get in front of you to pitch? Uh, I don't. In front of me to pitch is no longer a thing I really am interested in or do. I'm, I'm getting old. So the best way to interact with me is just send an email to brad at feld.com. Put tech TTO in the subject line uh, with whatever else you want in the subject line, just so I have context. Uh, and then start with the punchline. Hey, Brad, uh, you know, I'm raising uh, $2 million bucks for my company that does blah, 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 blah. Uh, you know, uh, are any interest. And then you can give me 10 paragraphs of shit. You can give me DocuSign, <laughs> whatever. And I can tell you very, very quickly whether or not we're a target as, a, as an investor. And if we're not a target, if you start that way, I can say, you know, we're not a target. I'll look at your DocuSign because I, I want to, at the minimum, just know what it is, give you feedback if I can. But we're investors in 35 venture funds like Matt's. And I'll look at it and say, you know what? We're not a target for you, but you know, probably these five firms might be. Do you want me to make intros <laughs> to them? So, so it's just just efficient, direct. Um, hey, Brad, I want to get together with you for a cup of coffee while it's COVID. I'm, I haven't left my house except to go. 
March. So that's not going to happen. Hey, Brad, can we get on a Zoom call together? I spend eight fucking hours a day on Zoom. Uh, this is a day where I got to spend an hour and a half on StreamYard. So only <laughs> hours on Zoom. I don't want to do any more Zoom calls. Just start with it. And then, by the way, it's not that it's a transactional relationship. I'm happy to start to get to know you. If you have specific questions, ask them. I'll try to give feedback. My secret weapon that I use with other people is the best way to get a busy person's attention is to either ask them direct questions and be totally comfortable with them ignoring you or saying no, just no response or no, or do something of value for that busy person in advance of trying to engage with them as a way of having them start to get to know you, which means you have to do a little work to understand what that person cares about and what that person does. Yeah, I, I love the actually delivering value before you actually send the email. Out. I have to ask a follow-up question inside, uh, you know, Twitter Venture. Uh, when someone sends a deck, doc send or attachment? Uh, I don't have. I don't care anymore. I okay. I find doc I find doc send annoying. Um, uh, I probably prefer slight preference to attachment, um, but I don't do anything on a phone or an iPad. I do everything on my computer, so it doesn't really okay. matter to me anymore. And, you know, I, I get the benefit to entrepreneurs of using something like that's a tracker like DocSend or Yesware, you know, where you actually can see who opened it and how long they spent on which page and whatever. So I, I kind of get that, but um, I'm neutral. There are, uh, there are very religious, there's a lot of religion among some investors. One of my, one of my partners, uh, Lendl, hates DocSend and, uh, for a couple of reasons. And a lot of it is just the way he works and the way it interferes with his workflow versus having an attachment. And so you're just creating more friction uh, uh, for some people who don't like it, but I, I'm pretty indifferent. Interesting. Um, what's Masa's from SoftBank's secret power? Like, I don't know if you ever interacted with him, but he's definitely larger than life figure. So what, what, what's his secret power? Yeah, um, I don't have a close, uh, a close relationship personally with Masa. We, we met a number of times. Um, uh, I don't know whether he could pick me out of a lineup anymore <laughs> just based on, you know, his world versus my world. Um, uh, but I was in, you know, I, I watched him in action in a number of meetings, some successful, some not. Um, I'm very, very close with, uh, Ron Fisher, who's vice chair of SoftBank. And it really is the person who was one of my mentors and, and somebody who I, I followed through, uh, many of the activities there. You know, I think, I think Masa, uh, like many other, um, uh, leader, uh, sort of entrepreneurs, uh, uh, has a, there's a phrase I just saw from a new, a new show called, uh, um, uh, Ted Lasso. I don't know if anybody's watched Ted, Ted Lasso yet. It's a American sort of second tier football coach who ends up being a coach of a English football soccer team. And it's, it's a comedy and it's very, very funny. And, and Lazo describes it, it's the same thing Rafa Nadal has, if anybody's a tennis fan. Uh, he says he, they have, that Rafa Nadal has a memory of a goldfish. Memory, it's 10 seconds long. You play your point, you win or lose your point. You move on. And then you play the next point. And you don't live in the past. And my, my sense is Masa wakes up each day, somebody close to me, uh, I won't mention their name close to me that also knows, knows Masa very, very well and, and stopping very well said that he wakes up every day with a clean piece of paper. He doesn't, you know, like he learns and it's not to say that there's yeah. no memory and there's no, but, but I get but it. He, like no, no regrets. Like, okay. It's a new day. 
what's in front of the world. I got a vision. I know what I'm trying to do. What's in front of me. Oh, I made some really big mistakes. Okay. Let me learn from them. Let me deal with my reality next. And that's really hard. It's been, you know, like as an investor who's had a lot of successes and a lot of failures, it's hard, but everyone that's incredibly successful um, has both successes and failures. And I think it's the combo. It's not just being able to move on from your your failures, but move on from your successes. Hmm. You're not like when Nadal wins, wins, you know, uh, uh, Roland Garros, the next day, my guess is he's out on the courts practicing again. He's not like, you know, partying for three days, like, yeah, I did it again. He's like, yep, I did that. Okay, next. And that's not a joyless experience. It's just one where you're very intentional about each day is a new day. It's a little bit of the Jeff Bezos day one, right? You know, his mantra is every day is day one. Like you wake up each day and it's day one. Um, I have my own version of that, um, which I've had to work through for a long period of time, partly because of my own struggles with anxiety and depression and hanging on to, you know, to the way my brain chemistry works. And what I've found is that uh, the ability to, the phrase I use is non-attachment. Um, separate from attachment and detachment. And for the Buddhists in the audience, they'll recognize the language because a lot of people use the word detachment to uh, to talk about it. But really in Buddhism, it's non-attachment. It's yeah. it's that you you don't Talking engage either by holding on or by pushing away the things. You just recognize that they're things. Cool. I'm gonna, I have a few more questions, but I, you know we're out of time. So I'm going to ask one last question. Uh, okay. If you were, if you were a founder, what you know, what 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 company would you start today? Or what would you want to see a founder start today? I don't. I I have a gr- I have a great answer to that, which is uh, doesn't fucking matter what I think. Um, <laughs> I, so so uh, what matters then? It, no, it doesn't matter. It, what matters yeah. is that the thing you are working on is something you were put on planet Earth to do. So pick something you're obsessed about, not passionate. It's so easy to fake passion, like. You know, an extrovert can be passionate about a loaf of bread. This is the greatest. Uh, Somebody has borderline personality disorder, like one day everything's amazing and the next day everything's good. Like, it's so easy to to fool yourself there. It's this is the thing that I was put on planet Earth to do. And by the way, over the course of a lifetime, it doesn't have to be one thing. Side, you know what? I've been working on this for a while. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to do something different. But that's that's what you should start your business. With. So I'm actually going to lie. I've lied. I'm going to ask a follow-up question. I apologize for lying. Um, I don't call that, that, I call that an addendum. Okay, an addendum then. Um, if it's to do this thing you're being put on earth to do, and more than passionate about, how as an investor do you spot that in someone? Because like you said, a good extrovert can can fake it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, I, I probably came up with that language over a decade ago. And I think some of it was the number of things I've been exposed to as an angel investor at the very early stages, plus then the velocity of things around tech stars. And all of a sudden, it started to be pretty easy to, to, to feel qualitatively, not quantitatively, but qualitatively, whether the person you were talking to was really all in on this thing or whether they were promoting an idea that they were interested in, but that they weren't all in on. So that's, that's early. And then over time, 
what I've tried to do is not have a set of magic questions, um, but watch the behavior of the founders and watch their body language and interactions with each other. And for the founders who are the most sort of effusive in the first meeting or two, okay, good. I want to hear from the ones who are less effusive. And it's not that I'm filtering against enthusiasm. I'm just trying to get the next layer down. And what I've then found, this is not, I mean, I presume people could game it, but the effusive founders either become much more substantive and much less promoting, or they don't. If they don't, then there's usually, there's signal to start to poke on around, is this really what you're meant to do? Um, and it, it, it appears pretty quickly. Do I make mistakes on that? Absolutely. Do I misjudge on that? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm not saying that it's flawless. Do I have my own biases, cognitive biases that get in the way? Of course. But it's that kind of dynamic. It's to not sort of, I like everything. So anyone who comes and talks to me about an idea, I like, you know, what do you think of my idea? I like it. Like, I like everything. That doesn't mean it's going to be a good investment for me or for us. It doesn't mean it's going to be a successful company. So like having to use a different evaluative lens and then doing it in a way where I'm not introducing bias. Uh, here's a phrase I hate in the context of, of VCs. I think the word pattern matching should be banned. I think it's a terrible phrase. Like, why the fuck is pattern matching a good thing? Like, yeah, okay, I've, I've seen this. I know how it works. I understand it. But aren't we looking for disruptive innovations? Aren't we looking for things that break the norm, break the mold, that challenge the conventional yeah. wisdom? So, well, how can you have pattern matching against that? So it's trying to, like, again, take the biases, acknowledge them, and, and probe early on a different set of things that for me are not necessarily comfortable. That helps it be emergent. I love that answer. Brad, a huge thank you for your insights and for your time from the entire TechTO community. Um, thanks for taking time to share the stories. And we hope to see you in person whenever uh, Someday the world, world returns normal. Together again, I'll see you. <laughs>